My guest today is Brian Kaplan. He's an economics professor at George Mason University, New York Times bestselling author, father of four, author of The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and Open Borders. Dr. Kaplan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Fantastic to be here. Yeah, so I I first interviewed you way back in 2013 when you came out with your book, um, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and I really wow. found that book helpful. I really appreciate your writing style. Very clear, uh, thoughtful, and uh, that's been very helpful to me, that book, in, in Raising Kids. But what I wanted to have you on today to talk about was your interest in Thomas Sauce and his ideas and how they've how you've thought about his ideas over the years. So um, for, I, the first question I'd like to get started with is, how did you first find out about Sauce and his ideas? If I remember correctly, it was actually when I was an intern at the Cato Institute in the summer of 1991, and the director of the interns that summer was Sheldon Richmond, who was a big fan of Thomas Sauce and a promoter and a friend. He was the one that got me interested in it. Now, as when I started reading, I think soon thereafter, I probably read, I think maybe The Untamed Tongue was my first one. That's at least uh, the one that I really remember. It's probably my favorite of his books. So that's the uh, origin story. Okay. So you said that, the yeah, The Untamed Tongue, I love that book as well. Um, it, it's a, it contains a lot of aphorism and witty sayings by him. Um, have you made it through all 30 plus of his books or have you just uh, made it through the main ones? I think I probably read about 15 out of the books. Some, the especially The Untamed Tongue, I've read multiple times. I think Insanity, I've read a couple times. I mean, I would just put him in the category of thinkers who kind of keep writing the same book over and over, and it keeps getting better and better and better. Although with, with Sauce, I would say that he really kind of wrote the same two books over and over because he would write these books on mental illness then he'd write the books of aphorisms and those are very different books really but uh, his first one if I remember correctly is The Myth of Mental Illness which uh, is the book for which he's still probably best known. That book is not actually that good in my view it's written in the 50s, it's just kind of poorly organized, there's a germ of what he's really going to argue in the end but then he rewrites that book a bunch of times, and by the end, I would say that the best version of that book is Insanity, The Idea and Its Consequences. That book's fantastic. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have similar feelings as well. As as he kept writing books, they kept getting better and better. Although, I did think that his book, uh, written in the 70s, Ceremonial Chemistry, which talks a lot about the drug war, I thought that was yes, pretty so, good. So that, that, that doesn't fall into either of those categories, so you know, I don't want to diminish the his range, which is good. Uh, but he, you know, at least a lot of his books can sort of be put in those two categories, and then there's some spare ones. Yeah. Um, so, for me, when I first, I think I, I think I learned about Sauce from you, uh, from reading your blog. Mm -hmm. I can't be sure of that, but I'm pretty sure that's how I found out about him. But when I first started reading him, it took me a while to understand what he was even saying because it's like a fish out of water. This idea of mental illness, addiction, uh, is so pervasive in our society and medicalization of normal human problems that it took me several books to understand what he was even saying. And I think a lot of his critics don't really take the time to understand what he was saying. How about you? Did it take you a while or did you catch on to his thesis right away? I think it did take me a while, actually, although 
the books of aphorisms, those are the ones that I think are best for that fish out of water syndrome that you're talking about, because the aphorisms are ones where he says something you're like, no, it's a, well, maybe, actually, okay, you kind of get it. I mean, a lot of what he's doing with his aphorisms is they're really gestalt shifts, where there's a certain way of seeing something, and then he says, well, you could also see it in this totally different way. You're like, oh, yeah, so you could. Like one that's very memorable to you from the untamed tongue from the untamed tongue is where he says that saying that you've got a mental illness and going to a doctor to cure it is like disliking the program on television and calling up a television repairman to fix it. And it's like, hmm, yeah. In both cases, it's not really a complaint about the thing doesn't work. It's rather a complaint about I don't like how it's being used, which are just conceptually fundamentally different things. It is crazy to go and call the television repairman to say the shows aren't funny. Come fix the TV. And it's like the TV's working fine. It's just broadcasting stuff you don't like. And similarly, to say that someone who drinks too much or neglects his family or is abusive is diseased rather than, you know, that they're working fine doing something that you really don't like. Two very different things. So I would say that the books of aphorisms are the ones that are really good at getting you to just see that there's a different way of looking at the very same facts. And then books like Insanity That Need Its Consequences, those are the ones where he really makes the argument and tries to address a lot of the criticisms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and he's got his book of aphorisms, like his uh his later or his most recent one is called Words to the Wise, and that's around forty dollars on Amazon. But some of his older ones are still in print, or at least you can get get them on Amazon, like The Untamed Tongue, for a few dollars. So if anyone's yeah, yeah. listening and you want to, yeah, if you want to understand them, I would say start with the aphorisms and go from Definitely. there. Um, so. What do you think that most people misunderstand or why do you think most people, there's very few of us who think that Saz is right. Uh, do you, first of all, do you think that he got his right on all fronts or are there certain things that you disagree with regarding mental illness? Let's see. Well, let's start with that first question. So why is it so hard for people to take these ideas seriously? I fundamentally blame what psychologists call social desirability bias. Social desirability bias is a fancy phrase for the omnipresent fact that when the truth sounds bad, people lie, and sometimes lies become so ubiquitous that we just begin to accept absurd things as true. So, you know, like a classic example would be, am I fat? All right, there's only one socially acceptable answer to that question. Oh, no, 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 you're good, you're good. All right, and yet we know, so yeah, there's plenty of people who are fat. All right, so, but another one is something like, Oh, uh, do you want to come to my party on Friday? Oh, I would love to, but I can't. It's like, so what, you're, are you going to be physically in a jail cell that would prevent you from getting to the party? Or, I, no, like, really? I am saying I can't when what I mean is I have something better to do, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. This is a general psychological phenomenon, exhaustively documented in a wide range of areas. People exaggerate how much they vote. They exaggerate their patriotism, their willingness to sacrifice, exaggerate how charitable they are. You know, so it really just, just goes on and on in terms of what you can explain with this. People are instinctive benders of the truth when the truth does not sound good. Now, really what Sauce is doing is taking a culture of with that uses social desirability bias to cope with the ugliness of bad human behavior. And then he says, I'm not going to talk that way anymore. I'm going to talk honestly. 
right? So it's social desirability bias to say, oh, well, people who are heavy drinkers, uh, they can't help it. Yeah, why not? What makes you say they can't help it? What's the proof they can't help it? Now, in my work, I actually pursue this question more empirically than Sauce does, and I say, well, is it even true that this kind of behavior that people say they can't help is even less responsive to incentives and other kinds of behavior? And according to most estimates, there are actually high responsivenesses of not only drinking, but drug use to incentives. You really do get the behavior of these things down if you raise the price, which many people say, oh, so you're saying we should raise the price of these things to cure people. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the very fact that you can get someone to change their behavior by raising the price shows that they were perfectly capable of changing their behavior before you raise the price. And therefore, you are conceptualizing it incorrectly. It is not a disease. It is a, it is a choice, a preference. It's something that people do because they like to. Now, again, just to really get to the heart of this, it's something that you that's definitely in sauce, but uh, you know, he was seemed to be very pleased when I rephrased it in the way that I'm now going to. And it comes down to this. Look, if you are an extremely heavy drinker to the point where it's very horrible for your family and you want to escape punishment, what do you say? Do you say, tough luck, I prefer my favorite beverages to you guys if it's a matter of either I have to go without alcohol or, or you know, or uh, and you have to suffer, or you know, or you know, and you stop suffering, or I drink and you suffer. I prefer the one where I drink and you suffer. Well, if you talk that way, then you're probably going to get cut off really quickly, and people are just going to completely lose patience and purge you. But if you go, oh, poor me, it's a disease I want to change. Oh no, I love you more than anything, but the drink calls to me like a siren. If you say that, eventually people probably will will, will get sick of you too. But you've got a much longer fuse and probably with a milder punishment to the end. So, of course, people are going to talk this way. Now, this doesn't mean that people are necessarily looking in the mirror and saying, okay, now I'm going to completely lie. It's, it, it is, like I said, when the lies become ubiquitous enough, then people will start to really internalize absurdities and actually believe them. But it's one where if you really look at the way that their behavior responds to incentives, you can just see that alcoholism is not a disease. It ain't, it ain't nothing like a disease. It's just like someone who likes video games a lot or likes sex a lot. Of course, there's always going to be psychiatrists that will just tack addiction on to the end of anything. Uh, and then, how do they decide which are the real addictions and what are the fake ones? Very simple. They vote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Right, right. I, actually, it's, this is too good to pass up. So, uh, Sauce is the one who let me in on the dirty secrets of how homosexuality stopped being a mental illness. Do you remember remember the story? Uh, didn't the, the, a bunch of homosexuals got together and, and lobbied against the having it that it's way? Better, better, it's, oh, it's better. It's better. So, of course, homosexuality is labeled a mental disease for many decades. And then in the early 70s, they start protesting. And then psychiatrists at first close ranks. They say, no, no, science definitely says the disease. You can't go on. And then there is a big gay takeover to the American Psychiatric Association meetings. They total crash the party. And almost immediately, the psychiatrists suddenly change their mind. And then afterwards, they say, well, how can we change your mind on homosexuality, but not on transvestism, not on other fetishes, right? And the president said, well, maybe it's because they didn't protest us. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. Now, I'm almost sure that the APA has subsequently, in the last few years at least, uh, re <laughs> taken transvestism off the list. Um, 
So this still might be gender dysphoria, but now it's something that you treat not psychiatrically, but physically. Right? Yeah. Which you know, it all goes to show like, there's something totally fishy about what they're doing. This is one where obviously it was not new information that changed their mind. Rather, it was social pressure that changed their mind. And you know, this is only the sauce pointed out in there very often, but come on, man. This yeah. is very telling. You know, you're not going to get cancer activism getting people to say, oh, I guess cancer is just another lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. A, a few times in his writings, he said, you know, uh, Sauce said something along the lines that it's it's a it's a lie, but it's extremely useful. And I, and I recently read a book called, uh, on addiction called The Useful Lie. And I think that there's a lot in that phrase. It's like um, if my addiction or my mental illness, my poor behavior, my laziness, my uh, is is something similar to cancer, then it's not my fault. And it, and it oh, yeah. takes away the responsibility. Uh, do you think the responsibility aspect is just a huge part of this, too? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think a lot of the best way to think about mental illness is that it's a strategic alliance, sometimes between the psychiatrist and the patient, other times between the psychiatrist and the family. Right. In the case of the psychiatrist and the patient, that's with something that is never going to get you locked up. It's never going to get you drugged against your will. That's where you basically go to psychiatrists to go and get an ally to tell your family and friends I have some behavior that's objectionable to you, but you have to be, be sympathetic, you have to be merciful, you have to put up with me, you must change, not me. Uh, there's also the other kind where it's alliance between the psychiatrist and your family to involuntarily drug you or to lock you up. This is something else that Sauce talked about a lot. Of course, involuntary mental hospitalization is way down compared to the 50s when he started, quite plausibly due to Sauce's activism. In fact, uh, a lot of people, whether they like him or not, give him credit. But on the other hand, we have switched over to just a lot of involuntary drugging, not just of kids, but of adults, too. Yeah, and that's yeah. where it's not really the alliance of the patient and the doctor. It's the alliance of the family and the doctor against the patient, right? Where the patient says, yeah, like, I don't want to do it, right? And the family says, well, um, no, you have to because you're sick. And you have the kind of sickness that prevents you from understanding that you're sick, and therefore it isn't up to you. Hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, I've read when I read criticisms of Sauce. I know uh, Scott Alexander wrote a piece uh, mm -hmm. criticizing your paper, and there's there's entire books criticizing Sauce. Um, they they really don't seem to understand what he was saying. He was more of a, a criticizing language and the way we use language and the way we use categories in our language. And and a lot of times the critics will say, well, he doesn't really understand it because we have this new brain MRI that shows this or that. Yeah. And and I just feel like so many people don't even take the time to understand what he was saying. And yet they're so quick to criticize. Uh, it's like we're, people who agree with him are seen as inhumane. Have you uh, taken that criticism that your position is inhumane? I'm in a weird bubble where very few people would make that criticism, but I think it's likely that if I stepped outside, people would. Usually people actually just tell me I'm crazy and I don't know what I'm talking about. And then they talk about some MRI study, right? And that's where I say, you know, it's, so definitely Sauce was a master of language, but I see him fundamentally as a philosopher of mind, philosopher of mind. So just asking questions like, does it make sense to think of a person that has beliefs that you don't agree with as being sick? So, you know, like, does it make sense to think of someone who believes in Zeus or Satan or worships Satan as being a sick individual in, a, in some literal sense, not as in that sick man, but as in he is sick in the same way in which I, a person might have cancer or pneumonia or something like that. And 
yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I think a lot of what critics do is they try to find the grayest of the gray areas, which I will say Sauce was probably was weak on that, and I tried to tone that part down and say, like, there's just some parts where they're just genuinely confusing. But then I say, yeah, but there's also massive other areas where he's clearly right. And it seems like people don't want to give any ground on that. Like, Scott Alexander, a brilliant, brilliant guy, very, you know, very insightful, very thoughtful. But when he got to the part where I was talking about the reclassification of homosexuality as a non-disease, he just said, people are going to be talking about this example for a thousand years. And it's like, yeah, well, there's a good reason why people are going to be talking about this example for a thousand years, because it shows something. It shows that you take a preference that you disagree with, where you might say that it's good or bad, but you, you then try to avoid that moral conversation by just saying, look, it's a mental disease. These people are, are sick in the head. And therefore, we're going to go and treat them whether they like it or not, because given how they are, they aren't capable of deciding what kind of treatment they actually would benefit from. And so it, it is a strange reaction. And again, it's one where I think just for him to look at it, he's all right, so, all right, fine, totally not a disease. But then there's a question, like, well, what makes that one not a disease, but makes a bunch of other things a disease? Right now, sociologically, it's just a matter of whether you got the votes in the APA. Right or really, yeah. there's a committee for the D, for the DSM, right? But intellectually, what was learned by the psychiatrists that changed their minds? And the answer, of course, is nothing. They didn't learn anything. It was just a matter of it was no longer convenient for them to go and demonize gays, and so they stopped. Yeah, and I mean, you could even go back further than that. I'm sure you've probably heard about uh, dropotomania, yeah, yeah. which is the uh, slaves who like to run away. They, they obviously yeah, have an illness. Mental illness think you'd be better off free from slavery. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you had a chance to meet Saz and you won the Thomas Saz award. I think it was in 2005. Uh, what yeah. was he like? What was it like to meet him? Oh, wow. He was by far the sharpest guy in his eighties I've ever met. And I've met a lot of intellectuals in their eighties. He blew them all away. Like, I mean, as to how sharp he was when he was younger, I just don't know. Never had, never had that privilege to talk to him. But, you know, talking to him, he's like in his mid-80s, like I'm dinner with him for three hours. You know, he, like, like you know, he, he, like, he could under, it wasn't just that he was great on things that he knew. He could un- comprehend and critically respond to totally new ideas. Most of the very greatest Nobel laureates that I've hung out with for hours, they, you know, they might still be amazing on their topics, but they have lost any capability of understanding a new idea. Sauce was, was just so quick on his feet. It was great. Just so lively, so full, you know, so, you know, so full of joie de vivre. You know, he was just, just, just an incredible guy, you know, like, like super short, you know, <laughs> so just like, the, like this sprite shows that he's literally sprite, not just sprightly, he was like a sprite where he just bound out and, you know, like great physical health. As you probably know, he was also very much in favor of why, of why suicide, not killing yourself just because your girlfriend dumped you, but like when you are at a point where you can no longer enjoy life anymore, you're in such a bad physical condition, there's no hope for you, then killing yourself. And um, you know, like his writings on that also extremely convincing to me. And I believe he practiced what he preached. My understanding is that when, like, once he was extremely, uh, you know, his health was extremely poor with no prospect of improving, he did kill himself. Uh, at, like, but again, around the age of 93. So, um, you know, like, you know, a, a model human being, someone with the courage, you know, not just thoughtful, but with the courage of his convictions, who really used what he thought to live his life. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, he got a ton of pushback while he was uh, during his lifetime from his writings. Uh, he he almost got fired. Uh, he, you know, he was ostracized. Why do you think he kept writing on this topic over and over again throughout all the years? Yeah, to meet him, you have the answer. You know, like his personality, just a diehard iconoclast. You, know, like you remember, like you know, he was a young man in communist uh, communist Hungary. You know, like, you know, like he like he fled for his freedom, I believe, during the '56 revolution. He was just someone who said, "Look, like I like I, I lived for years under a despotism that tried to tell me that I couldn't say what I thought was true. I'm saying it, hell or high water." line in the sand. That's the kind of guy that he was, but very friendly about it. I mean, he honestly was someone who just did not care much about what other people thought about him. Like, like he was a man of conscience. If he thought he was right, then he would stand up and say what he thought was right. Yeah, yeah. Did you, when you were writing your paper on the economics of SAWS, did you get a lot of pushback from the reviewers of the paper and uh, mm. as far as being nervous about whether they could allow this to be published, these ideas? I was expected to go through substantial revisions, but it was sent to two reviewers that were at least non-hostile. Okay. And uh, okay. so I, I made substantial revisions. Um, I have suspicions about who the referees were, actually. I, I have no proof, but I believe one of the referees was Deirdre McCloskey. Um, okay. And you know, like part of the book is I was talking about Deirdre, Deirdre McCloskey's autobiography when she was talking about her gender transition. Right. And then there were some hard questions about that, which, again, maybe was somebody else, but that's my guess. But, you know, it really comes down to the, uh, you know, like the Saucian view of, look, like, like just because someone wants something that seems really strange to almost everybody does not make them sick. Of course, you know, as you might know, McCloskey was involuntarily committed for at least a few days by her family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed when reading Sauce is that he – he reads so widely, like he read Deirdre McCloskey's autobiography. Uh, he reads just, just, it seems like everything. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah. Sauce is a great Shakespeare guy. And, you know, like, like some of his stuff is he just goes over all the different words for madness in Shakespeare. Like, you know, like, like Sauce is a big fan of this phrase to go mad or to go crazy, which he says, you know, su suggest activity. It's not that one is thrown into madness or dropped into madness one goes there you get up and you move over there and that's literally what's going on so he talks about you know madness madness and hamlet or king lear that kind of thing and again like since i do know those works pretty well when you read that it's like huh yeah i mean there's even the hamlet line i am but mad north by northwest it's like oh what does that mean uh, well you know like you could just take it as i'm pretending to be crazy or you could take it as look i'm acting unconventionally to an extreme degree but if you actually sat down and listened to me, I would explain that I believe that my uncle murdered my father to bury my mother, and I really ticked off about that, and I'm going to get revenge somehow, but I'm having trouble working up my courage. It's like, oh, all right. Well, thanks for telling me. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is, the, is a key insight that you've gained from reading Saz over the years? Has he helped you in, like, in your personal life at all? I would say that he has, actually. Yeah, so writing that paper, I actually remember telling my wife, I learned about life writing this paper. So it's one where it, it, it just really helps you to come to grips with the incredible diversity of humanity, just how, you know, again, not in the crummy, popular, you know, like, like you know, demagogic sense of diversity here right now, but just the true enormity of it. So, you know, like the enormity, you know, like the diversity of the, of, of the human personality is akin to the enormity of the universe. Like just when you realize that there are people that choose to be nuns, 
which to me <laughs> is like way crazier than almost anything in the DSM. Like you're going to go and marry Jesus. What are, are you out of your mind? That's ridiculous. This is like, you have no reason to believe this being even exists. You're going to give up your whole evolutionary heritage. You're going to let your genes go down in flames so that you can be a bride of your imaginary friend. And yet, of course, almost no one considers them to be mentally ill. But uh, it's like, all right, well, that's one thing that they do. Then there's other people. There's people who light themselves on fire to protest an injustice. It's like, yeah, they actually exist. They're real. There's a guy in Tunisia. There's a guy in Vietnam. There's not many of them, but they are within the, the range of human behavior, right? And if you would talk to them before they did it, you would see, oh, wow, they've got a story. It's not a story I like, but... To go and say that they are that their brains are somehow diseased because they're doing something that seems outrageous and horrifying to me is just the wrong way of thinking about it. You've got to just come to grips with, look, something that seems terrible to you might seem great to somebody else. They might be wrong, but it doesn't mean that they are not capable of thinking about the, the reasons for and against. Right? I'm not sure whether this is actually in sauce or not, but there's a line from... See, I, I want to say the Roman juvenal could be wrong about that. But anyway, some great Roman who said, you know, I'm a man, nothing human is alien to me. That's a lot of what Sauce is saying is to take this wide range of human behavior that our society has just cavalierly said, ah, that is mental disease. It's nothing that we could really understand. It's all we can do is treat it. And then to say, what incredible pig-headed, narrow-minded arrogance to say, oh, we can't understand it. Like, what's so hard to understand about being an alcoholic? It's like, look, the beverage, it makes me feel great. I love it. Like, and like, it makes me feel like all my problems go away. Like, like, not, like nothing else really works for me in the same way. It, it never says no to me. It never judges me. And there's a whole bunch of people who are on my case for doing this thing just because I act like a jerk when I'm doing it. But you know what? I'm selfish, and so I don't really care that I'm acting like a jerk that much. And why can't they adjust to, to go to uh, deal with me? Why, do, why must I adjust to deal with them? I mean, this is honestly a voice in almost everybody's head when someone tries to get you to stop doing something you like doing. Why must I change? Why cannot the world revolve around <laughs> me? Me, me, me. All right, Doc. Perhaps I'm more prone to these thoughts than others, but I think that these are quintessentially human reactions to anyone getting on your case about anything. And just to realize that's a lot of what's going on with what people call mental illness, except that there are certain privileged people who get to have a special name attached to their behavior that bothers other people. Or alternately, there are some special people who are allowed to attach this name to bother some people and then to treat them in ways that would be illegal for almost anything else. Of course, another great case that I think Thomas Sauce would have been all over was uh, the uh, guardianship of Britney Spears. Yeah. Right? And it's like, well, court has just determined that she's not mentally fit to do it. It's like, why her? Like, there's like millions of people who are way more dysfunctional than her. Why her? And it's like, well, because she had some relatives who gained the system and she was a piggy bank that they could crack open. Ha ha. That's the yeah. real story. You know, it's like it really came down to, oh, my God, this this beautiful woman shaved her hair all off. All right, well, yeah. she's really sick. I mean, I think that was actually, <laughs> the, you know, like at, least, at least plausibly that was the tipping event. And, you know, again, like if I shave my head, nobody thinks that there's a problem. But a beautiful woman shaves her head, and then, oh, well, that's a disease. It's a disease, and she has to be protected from herself. Of course, she has to keep performing and bringing in the money. But, <laughs> 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 <All> right, so... <laughs> 
yeah, that. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like you're, you're, you're channeling sauce here. Is there, are there any other writers that you've writ, uh, read that come close to his wit and critical thinking? Let's see. It's a really good question. He is in such a category of his own. Of course, there's a number of books that have been written with a lot of Saucian influence. So there's uh, Addiction is a Choice. So you probably know that book. Yep. Let's see. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, there's uh, let's see, what are some other good ones? Or how about historically? Like, would would you put him up there with, like, Voltaire? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean Voltaire, like, you, I think you just have to adjust for Voltaire's in a very, very different time. So, you know, like, honestly, I would be much more inclined to, inclined to quote Sauce than Voltaire, although, uh, given his time, I think Voltaire was, you know, like, as good as Sauce, or even better, maybe, just as a, an aphorist. Let's see. There's a number of other ones that I really like. So, Sauce himself was really found, fond of an Austrian guy named Karl Kraus. Yeah. Right, so, I've read a bit of Krauss, but to me, Sauce is just much more, much more memorable. Let's see. Other people that I would compare Thomas Sauce to in terms of insight into human nature. See, of course, Shakespeare himself. Uh, there's tons of great stuff in Shakespeare. And you know, even the people that, in the context of the play, people call mad, Shakespeare does not just dismiss someone as mad. Right? We get to right. hear what they have to say. We get to see things from their point of view. And then we realize, all right, this person may be highly objectionable, <laughs> right? but as to why they get put in this special category of beyond human understanding is, uh, you know, is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I've, I've been curious over the years of Saz's political beliefs. I, I wonder if you have any insight on that since you met him, was he an anarchist or something close to that? Or do you happen to know? Hmm. I don't know about that. He was definitely radically libertarian. He was very solid on economics, not just civil liberties. So he was not just a single issue thinker who's trying to get libertarian policy policies for things relevant to psychiatry. He was someone who was very libertarian across the board. If you read his aphorism and so on, you can see he's got free market economics, very, very good understanding of it. I actually remember uh, Dan Klein was at that dinner with Thomas Sauce, and Dan had a question that to me was so hilarious, I keep repeating it, which was, you know, Dan Klein tells Thomas Sauce, Tom, did Carl Krauss know that the minimum wage sucks? <laughs> 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 and I can't remember Tom's answer, actually, but I still, uh, still find that hilarious. But uh, definitely there's no question, and Tom thought the minimum wage sucks. Of course, you know, he's on top of everything else, he was a refugee from communism, so he had that added fervor of the person that had to personally experience that horrible, monstrous, totalitarian garbage. Uh, let's see. So, you know, very, you know, so very, you know, very libertarian, very willing to, you know, to just say, yes, I, I fully believe in a person's right to ruin their own lives. Like, you know, that, you know. So, again, he was not someone who just to say, say oh, we can, we, you know, we, we can never know. Whether someone's ruining his own life, you know, he didn't. You know, so, which which of you, I think, is pretty dogmatic, you know? So, someone who's twenty years old, they say, "Ah, oh, my life is meaningless. I'm going to kill myself." And it's like, um, yeah, maybe you should wait. <laughs> you're, you're a little young <laughs> to be drawing this final verdict on life. Why don't you try some other experiences, try some variation? But Tom was still very willing to stand up and say, "Look, I think he's totally wrong. This is a, this is a, a terrible decision." But he is an adult human being. It's his right to go and do that and do things that are really bad for himself. I, you know, his, you know, like Tom was a real believer in his body, his choice. 
right? And, and so he was very willing to stand up for, you know, for, for you know, not just uh, you know, alcoholics, for drug users, for people who are suicidal, and just to say, hey, look, stop going and persecuting them. Like, even if they may be totally risk-guided, totally wrong, but it's their body, and it's uh, we, we can persuade them, we can try to convince them otherwise, but hands off the merchandise. Yeah. You've written, uh, let me ask you uh, personal advice for, like, someone who's struggling. Like, you mentioned someone who wants to kill themselves at 30 years old. They have so much left in their life they could do. You've mentioned a lot in your blog about Epicurus or Epicureanism, yeah. that you're a big fan of that. Does that inform, would that inform how you would advise someone who's struggling with life in some way? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, you know, another thinker who's had a huge influence on me is uh, Julian Simon. You know, in a way, like, you know, he's similar. You know, he's not just someone where I like his academic work. He taught me about life. He was someone who, by his own account, was just incredibly depressed for decades with almost no relief. And then finally, when he was, I think, in his 40s, he just said, okay, I'm going to finish up all my current work projects. Then I'm going to devote myself full time to reading everything I can about human happiness and depression and figure out if there's anything I can do about it. And then he finally did. He thought that he learned a lot that was useful and it worked for him. He wrote this book, Good Mood, which I think Thomas Soft would probably have appreciated. And yes, it was a very Epicurean book. It came down to a lot of the cause of happiness or unhappiness rather is unreasonable self-comparisons where you have standards that are just unmeetable and you just need to go and very energetically reduce your standards so that to a reasonable level so that you no longer see yourself as greatly falling short. So that's straight out of Epicurus. The popular meaning of Epicurean, of course, is someone who really appreciates fine wine and food and stuff like that. That's almost the opposite of what Epicurus was saying. Epicurus is more like saying, learn to really appreciate a good French fry. <laughs> learn to savor just very basic, easily available food and to say, oh, isn't this great? Like it's salty, it's you know, greasy, it tastes good, fills up my belly, I'm so happy, I'm grateful that I can even get that. So most of Epicurus was just about lowering your standards so that you would be happy with what you have. Uh, but then he also has a lot of other good advice, um, above all, saying that while you know, it is not really our external circumstances that is so important for our happiness, but rather our expectations of how good we'll be doing, so lower your expectations, that's a lot easier than improving the outcome. But Epicurus also was wise enough to say there are some things where this is not true. In particular, he said that one of the real causes of durable human happiness is just spending a lot of time around people's company you enjoy. Friendship. Yeah. Right. And again, this is, I think it's probably in sauce too, but it's not a big point in sauce. But this is definitely an Epicurus of, would stop going and focusing on things that either are displeading, like trying to get your granite countertop or a luxury car, and uh, definitely get rid of unreasonable standards, like I have to be a Nobel Prize winner, else I'm a failure. Or, or if you become a Nobel Prize winner, I have to be the number one Nobel Prize winner. I can't just be a regular schlub Nobel Prize winner. But then a really big part is surround yourself with people's company you enjoy. Just try to diplomatically spend as little time as possible with people's company you don't enjoy and try to get a lot of time with people's company you do enjoy and put yourself out there, really strive to make, good, to make, to make a lot of friends. And this is what's really important for human happiness is surrounding yourself with people that you really like which is honestly a lot of work. <laughs> right? It's a lot of work because people are busy. It's hard. Yeah. But like I myself, I'm like always trying to make new friends every day. Like I say, maybe a new friend, maybe a new friend, maybe, maybe, maybe. Right? And I, I, this is how I live my life. 
during COVID, of course, this was super tough because a whole lot of the friends you're depending on suddenly said, oh, I'm too, too scared I might die if I talk to you. So, oh, well, that's, that stinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you make time to be so productive with your work and your writing uh, when you're constantly trying to make friends? How do you make time for solitude to do important work? Well, I mean, I would say that 90% of the friends that I make, I make through my work, maybe even higher than that. So it's all complimentary. Like whenever I have an email encounter with someone that seems pleasant, I always offer to buy them lunch if the next time that they're available. And so, you know, most of the time that nothing comes to that, but sometimes it does. Uh, so that's how I fit that in. In terms of my work ethic, I see myself as a moderate worker. Honestly, I don't know that I've ever worked more than 40 hours in a week. At least it's very hard for me to remember any such time. I am a big believer in slow and steady wins the day. I do work basically every day, well, every weekday. But, you know, I'm a father of four, so, and I take that really seriously, too. That's really important to me just to actually have, sp- have, time, have a lot of time to spend stuff doing with my kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as Epicurus, is there a specific book that he wrote that you would recommend? Yeah, well, the, the, he hard, there's hardly any of his writing survives, so it's you can get through all of his work today. Uh, okay. So he's got, so usually it takes about 10 pages. The letter to Menoecius is the best. Right. Okay, and I'll put that in the notes. You, uh, Google Epicurus in my blog, you get my favorite translation. I don't know if it's really a better translation of the ancient Greek than the other ones. I, it's just more eloquent, and it's probably it's partly just the first one I heard, so it's the one that sticks in my mind. Like the other ones, like, oh, I don't know, I like the poetry of the original translation I, that I heard. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, that you can get through really quickly. The, you know, the much more famous, the, you know, the more, rather the, the Epicurean, whose work we have much more of, is Lucretius, who was a Roman follower who wrote centuries later. Uh, so uh, I believe his, uh, the Latin title of his most famous book is Rerum Naturum. I think it's just like translates on the nature of things. That, I think, is actually written in poetry. That one's quite good, too. Okay. Uh, you don't have to read it. Epicurus has all the stuff that you really need. And I mean, just the number of arguments that were plausibly original to Epicurus packed into 10 pages and the extent to which modern empirical research has confirmed almost every claim that's testable. It's like, wow, good job, Epicurus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a philosopher named uh, Epictetus. So I'll have yeah, to check yeah, out yeah, Epicurus. Also, also uh, quite good. Yes. Um, I mean, there, of course, you have the stoic idea of happiness isn't your own happiness isn't that important anyway, uh, in addition to giving some good advice for being happier. But <laughs> but still, it's kind of demotivating to hear your own happiness doesn't matter much anyway, and you're set to be happy. You're like, oh, that's true. I maybe shouldn't even try that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you did get a little depressed during uh, COVID because you couldn't see oh, friends yeah. as much. How did you deal with that? Honestly... Like for a while, I was dealing with it poorly, and then like once things loosened up, I just started trying to make new friends, and I did eventually make a lot of new friends. Actually, you know, my COVID friends, I wound up actually working out a deal with one very, very wealthy and generous friend to move my family to Texas for about three months, where things were a lot more fun and a lot more sociable. So, and then I you know had a lot of you know, I had some friends there already, but made a ton of new friends. So that was all just uh, great. So in the end, pulled myself together. I mean, for, yeah, for a while, it was just really hard. It was like nothing seems to be, to be working. I mean, honestly, like, like a lot of my advice to someone who's depressed is to say, look, I'm going to give you some advice, but here's the problem with it. You're going to have to get more depressed first in order to get less depressed in the long run. And you're just going to have to steal yourself. And I know that sounds really hard because you already feel really bad and you don't want to feel any worse than you already do. 
but you're just going to, but like the only way out of this is down, <laughs> right? What do I mean by that? Means things like just accepting that you're like, if you want, like you're going to get happier, you're going to need to make a, make a bunch of new friends. But for that to happen, you're going to have to deal with a lot of rejection, which is going to make you feel worse for a while. I see. Right? Most okay. obviously, you know, like you know, most obviously, like if you're just really lonely because you want a mate, it's like, well, I've, almost never heard anything good about the process of finding a mate. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like the horrible rejection and the mismatch and the agony. Right? Okay. Yeah. Like true, but like, there's no way out of this. you like, you just, just gotta like steal yourself and soldier through it. And, you know, just to, like, just put yourself out there and ask, just gotta ask. Right. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. know it doesn't feel like, I know it's painful. It's same thing with getting a job. Of course, you're like really depressed and discouraged. It's like, well, here's what you have to do to feel good about yourself again. Do a bunch of things that are going to really discourage you even more than you already are. But there's no, no other way out. The phone's not going to ring and give you a job. You've got to steal yourself and just very consciously think, I am go I'm willing to go and suffer more now in order to solve my problem. Yeah, yeah. I think that's good advice. Um, regarding uh, your your comment about Julian Simon, Saz actually did write a commentary on on his book in the book called Faith and Freedoms. I think you'd be very uh, interested to read it. He kind of yeah, psychoanalyzes. If I if I read it, ever read it, I forgot that I read it. Okay, well check it out, and I'll put a I'll put a link to that in the uh, notes. Cool. Cool. Uh, you're a, Saz was a proponent of free will, and you are as well. Do you think that Do you think that free will is a big part of uh, this idea that you have control or that mental illness is a myth. I'm not hundred percent sure that sauce did believe in free will. I don't remember mm. any passage where he said, look, there's the philosophical issue of free will versus determinism. And I am definitely on the side of, you know, of what, what philosophers would call libertarian free will as opposed to compatibilism. Uh, it's true that he uses the language of free will, but guess what? Almost everybody does, no matter how determinist they are. Almost everyone uses the language of free will. So, I mean, I, I would, my guess is that he would be, but I'm not super confident about that. I mean, it's like, honestly, it is, it's just a very unpopular view among intellectuals. I mean, what I would say is that from a Saucian framework, you just say that you know, like alcoholism, for example, it is as free a choice as any other choice, right? That's yeah. And then as to leaving, leaving aside whether anything, whether anything else is, uh, for me, yes, it does uh, does play this role but even there i will say as a social scientist there's you know it's you know very hard to come up with any empirical test of like is free will or determinism true but it is very possible to say do incentives change behavior and that then gives us a definitive answer to the question well was was it within the person's range of possibilities to go and do otherwise right and you know in the same way that if uh, so, you know, so, you know, if someone goes and says they can't buy something and then they turn around and they buy it and, and you look and you say, well, look, the price is on this $10 and you've got a thousand dollars and uh, you just click there and you buy it. So you can, right? So, you know, that's the sense in which so many of the things that people say they can't choose actually are chosen. But Yeah, yeah. You know, you have, uh, when I read your work, you're a very clear writer. Uh, I, I like your thinking. I, I enjoy reading you. Uh, what do you do to organize your, your writing in, in a clear fashion, uh, say, for a blog post or a book? Hmm. I mean, usually, honestly, I work out ideas in my head long in advance. 
really any time that I get any idea, I try before I forget it to immediately write down the, uh, the title on my blog queue. And also, if the title is a little obscure, just to write a sentence or two, just so I don't forget what I was thinking about. So that's a very large part of what goes on with me, is just when ideas come to me, I just try to get them down on paper and then get back to them. I mean, not to brag at all, but I have hundreds and hundreds of ideas in my queue that I have not gotten to. Right, so okay. now how I do that, I mean, honestly, I, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, like, I, I have spent a lot of time reading things, so I do make a lot of connections just because I've got a lot of background knowledge. And I just try to keep my eyes open, try you know, like just try to be curious to say, hmm, was that what I would have expected to happen or not? It's like, hmm, not really. You know, you know I was just uh, watching this movie, The Butter Meinhof Complex, yesterday. You're watching, you're like, huh, just like three quarters of these German murderous terrorists are women. I didn't expect that. What's going on there? Hmm, hmm. that's weird. All right, it's not like other groups I know of. Uh, yeah. All right, and that's the, so things like that, just like anything that seems out of the ordinary, or sometimes things where people just say, oh, it's so obvious it would be this way, and that just provokes me. It's like, well, why would it be obvious? It seems so obvious to me that it would be so. I, maybe it is so, but why? All right, so now in terms of the getting the idea down on paper, um, a lot of it for me is having the right imagined reader. So, you know, like, so, like, writing, it's not a diary. You're not writing to yourself. You're writing to communicate. That's the first rule that I always tell myself. Some writers, it really is like a diary, and they just sort of assume that everyone understands everything they've done, then they're bad, usually. But, mm -hmm. you know, like, well, like, what I'm always trying to do is to take an idea and communicate it to a reasonable person that doesn't currently agree. That's what I, that's, that, that is my imagined reader. Now, in practice, I know a lot of people that read me are just very sympathetic to me. But it's just too low of a bar to go and write for those people. It's too easy, and it's become stale, and you aren't really pushing yourself. I think it's just a lot better to say, well, like, what would be, like, what would be a, pl a starting point that would be plausible to someone that disagreed with this conclusion but was reasonable? Right? What could I do there? Right? And that's why, for example, in my paper on sauce, I will just try to I'll ask questions like this. So, look, if alcoholism is really disease, then... Why is it that if you were dealing with a close alcoholic relative who stubbornly refused to change, that eventually you would go and cut them off? Why would you do that? You wouldn't cut them off for cancer, would you? Why do you cut them off for this? It seems like it's not me that, that believes that there's something very different about the so-called disease. You believe it too. That's the way that I would try to write it, just to, you know, to start with something that already makes sense to them as, an, as a foundation and then move on. I also, as I'm writing, I'm, I'm uh, always trying to think of well, what would a reasonable person who wasn't convinced be saying, or better yet, if I could do better than someone that doesn't, that, that uh, to a reasonable person that doesn't agree, I think this is a way of saying, oh, yeah, this person actually is thinking ahead and is respond, it is making up criticisms that didn't occur to me that seem reasonable. This person isn't afraid to go and listen to the possibility that he's wrong. So these, these are things. Uh, another part, honestly, is... In 11th grade, I had an excellent English teacher in public school. Uh, her name was Mrs. Regis. I think she recently retired from uh, Granada Hills, now charter school. And what she did is she assigned Hemingway and then taught us to write like Hemingway. Hmm. Right? Hemingway is not the greatest writer in the world. I, don't, I barely know anyone who would ever think that. But he's one of the few great writers who has a teachable style. Right? Okay. Saying, teach me to write like Tolkien. It's like, I can't. 
teach you to write like Tolkien. <laughs> That's not doable. But teach me to write like Hemingway. I can teach that. And it comes down to, all right, write me a first draft, just whatever comes out of your mouth. And now, look at that draft. Take out your red pen. Step one, go to every single sentence and delete every word that you can delete without changing the meaning of the sentence. Great. Now, go to every paragraph and delete every sentence that you can delete without changing the meaning of the paragraph. Great. Now, go to the essay, delete every paragraph that you can delete without changing the meaning of the, of, of the essay. Great. Right. This is a teachable method that leads to much better writing than most people are capable of. So that is, is you know, like the single biggest influence in my writing is that Hemingway method of just trying to use as few words as possible to say what you want, say what you want to say. Other things that I do, I work a lot on diction, word choice. If there's a word that's over, that's overused, I just try to think of a synonym or better yet, a more precise word. Or often, if you want to know the truth, often I'm just going for a funnier word. <laughs> I, I instinctively, I'm trying to, I, like, I'm trying to entertain. So I want, like, I want to make people smirk at least. Scott Alexander, I believe, calls this micro humor, micro humor <laughs> of just using a word that seems a little bit odd, but is still highly descriptive and gets your point across by virtue of just being just a little bit insensitive or blunt. Um, so there, I mean, I say that you know, George Orwell is my second biggest influence, politics in this language. That's big for me as well. Uh, not everything he says there is right. <laughs> but uh, again, like, by following those rules, it will improve almost everyone. You know, the best people don't need to read Hemingway and Orwell and follow it, but everybody else does. And it's a huge help. Because you know, they're teaching you rules that you can internalize and then follow. Of course, once you've been doing it for decades, you don't really think about it anymore. You just do it automatically. Okay. Um, I was going. I wanted to ask you about in your own field of economics. There's. It seems like uh, there's a lot of talk about rational versus irrational, and I was wondering if those are just thinly veiled value judgments that Saz might criticize. Good question. Uh, the answer is that normal people use the word rationality in so many ways that it really has almost every meaning you can think of. It's got. It has descriptive meanings, it has normative meanings, it's got, it's got meta metaphorical meanings up the wazoo. Um, economists have, a, like, like qua professional economists, they have a much shorter list. They have basically three different versions of rationality that they officially use in the research. But economists are also human beings, and so they will sometimes smuggle in the many other definitions that aren't really part of the discipline, or they will just speak informally or metaphorically. Right, so the technical definitions come down to mathematical standards for what your probabilities have to look like relative to either each other or relative to some body of data. I'm not going to bore people by going over what those are, but those are the standard official ones. One is just called basis rule. The other one's called rational expectations. Those ones, I would say, are... They, like, they, they're more stipulative where they just say, I am going to call rational expectations this, and if someone satisfies this, then by definition they have rational expectations. And then I'm going to work through what does the world of rational expectations look like, what happens when people don't have rational expectations. That's the kind of thing that economists do more often. Uh, although, a lot of what motivated me to write the sauce piece is I found that there were a few economists who were writing about mental illness, and then they were sort of very cavalierly acting as if there was a instant overlap between the technical jargon of economics and the technical jargon of psychiatry. And I said, uh, no, 
no, you're, you're totally talking <laughs> past each other. These mean very different things, right? And indeed, uh, if you're using economist standards strictly, then basically maybe one person in a million is rational. <laughs> Only, you know, it's a continuum, but... I mean, even to say, you know, like you would be pushing it to say that 5% of people are even approximately rational because economist standards are so high, um, right? So that's uh, what was partly on my mind about how I could get economists motivated is, is just to think about it. On the other hand, I also told economists that psychiatric definitions have expanded so much that now 20 or 25% of the U.S. population gets classified as having a mental disease, right? So if we say that economics doesn't apply to them, then we have just thrown off a quarter of the population. So should we make this concession to this other field so hastily so, and, 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 and so deferentially, or should we push back as economists do against every other discipline in the social sciences? Why not? Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're coming to the end of our, our time together. I'm wondering if there's anything about SAS that we haven't discussed that you think might be helpful for people who are listening to this conversation. Yeah, well, we really haven't discussed any of the hard cases. So SAS has multiple books on schizophrenia, which there are, I think there are a lot of reasonable people say, all right, fine, alcoholism isn't really a disease. All right, obviously homosexuality isn't really a disease. There's a bunch of stuff that we call diseases, and it's really just a personality difference, ADHD. But... Schizophrenia, total freaking disease, All right? And Salas actually disagreed on this, All right? Now, this is one where I will say that I'm like 90% convinced there's, uh, you know, whereas Salas, I think, was like 100%. Salas actually had what he thought were just conceptual arguments, which I think he overstated and just leaned on too heavily. But when I wrote my paper, I was saying, well, look, uh, the... There are multiple symptoms of schizophrenia that you'll see in the book, but the two that really stick in people's minds are hallucinations and delusions. All right, now, uh, delusions are, by definition, fixed false beliefs. All right, such as, I'm the Emperor of Antarctica, or I am a living god. All right, those are classic delusions that will get you put in a mental hospital if you, if you say them too loudly, too long to people who really don't want you to say them. Right, and this is where you hear say, "All right, uh, what about religions and religious beliefs?" So, if uh, a billion people say that Jesus was the Son of God, that's totally sane. But if I say that I am Jesus, I'm crazy and sick. Right, so what's the logical difference between those? Well, if you go and read the DSM, you'll see that they actually have an explicit carve out saying that we don't call it a true. Uh, we don't call it a system. Uh, a, and they, don't even, they don't even call it delusion, much less a, sim a symptom of schizophrenia, if it is part of a religious group. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> so if I can just get a group of people that all agree that I'm Jesus, then I'm not sick anymore. <clears throat> Which is what the DSM amounts to. Intellectually, this is ridiculous. But in terms of the social role of the DSM, it makes a lot of sense because psychiatrists do not want to go and declare the, the, the believers in the world's main religions to be diseased. This will lead to reduced power for them. They will lose credibility rather than gain it. Right? So they do not want to take on all the world's religions and just say, sorry, we got five billion deluded believers. They're all schizophrenic. So they don't want to say that. All right. 
So really, what this is a case where when you think about it, obviously comes down to if your uh, if your fixed false belief has uh, if you've got a, a large enough group of people of your back, then you are solid and nothing will ever happen to you, and you'll be called sick by the psychiatrist. Whereas if you are the lone individual who has such a belief, the only one in the world who has it, and you're aggressive about it, and the people around you don't like it, then you're schizophrenic. All right, so that is a symptom that many people consider to be decisive, but I say actually. When you really dig, dig, dig deeper, you realize that it's quite bogus. Uh, furthermore, if you go and actually study the biographies of diagnosed schizophrenics, you will see that their commitment to their illusion seems very flexible based upon incentives. Yeah. Right? It's not just that your willingness to drink depends upon incentives. Willingness to claim that you're emperor of Antarctica or that you're a living god depends upon incentives. Right, and if you're tempted to say, "Well, all right, fine," you shut up about your godhood because you don't want to get you know, and your and your infinite omnipotence uh, because you don't want to get put in a mental hospital. It's like, hold on, if you sincerely believed you were omnipotent, would you ever be worried about someone putting you in a mental hospital? You would just say, "I'll snap my fingers and legions of angels will take me out of the mental hospital." I'm not worried about your stupid mental hospital. Try it. Right. So to me, this suggests that actually it is the belief itself that responds to incentives. Right, so surprisingly, as, as as that may be, you know, in the same way that when someone says it's absolutely certain that Trump will win the next election, and then you say, okay, fine, then let's bet it ten to one odds. Uh, no. All right, so were they lying when they said it? Probably not, but rather they were speaking emotionally, impulsively, and once you raise the price of being wrong, then their rationality kicks in, and then they realize, oh yeah, actually, I don't really have a crystal ball, so I'm not gonna, I, I don't have any reason to be that certain. Now, the symptom that I would say is hardest for SOS to cope with is the hallucinations. Hallucinations are distinguished from delusions and they're supposed to be false sensory perceptions. Right? And that is something where it does seem hard to understand, well, I can't just see the devil because I want to see the devil or because it would pay me to see the devil. I could lie and claim I do, but I can't just change what appears before my eyes. I can't just hear things because I want to hear them. So that seems more like a genuine physical symptom that would you know, that would be a reasonable thing way to say that's like the the bedrock sign of mental illness. Although even here, uh, once again, go to the DSM. They've got a religious exemption for this, a religious carve out, saying, "Well, if all group people claim to go and see Jesus, then it's not not a disease." Like, hold on, so that's pretty fishy again. But when you read that, my reaction at least is to say, "Well, we don't literally think that." A bunch of Christians see Jesus when they all say they see Jesus. They're speaking metaphorically, right? But once you're willing to say that, is it possible that when diagnosed schizophrenics, where we say they have hallucinations, talk about their hallucinations, that they're speaking metaphorically too? Right? And that seems right. pretty reasonable in a whole lot of cases anyway. Uh, so now on the flip side, uh, there also is actually a body of evidence saying that a, a strangely high share of the population admits to hearing voices. So like 25% of people in the Netherlands say it. And then if you go and say, huh, like hearing voices, that seems really weird to hear voices, a real sign of mental illness. Again, you go to the DSM and they say, we don't distinguish between whether the voice comes from inside your head or outside your head. Right. Ah, wait a second. A voice inside my head is... Well, everyone I know has voices inside their head. Anytime you have an internal monologue, it's a voice inside your head. That doesn't prove diddly. Uh, it's the it's the voice outcome that seems to be coming from outside of your head. That's the one that I would say would be the really strong sign of mental illness. 
Um, again, I think Sauce would would just draw a line in the sand. I want to be more open minded and say, all right, maybe there's something after we carve away all of the socially induced hallucinations, so called. After we carve away all the metaphors, after we carve away the ones that come from inside the head, isn't there something? After we carve away all the liars, is there is there nothing left? And that's where I'm agnostic enough to say, I don't know, maybe there's something. And Sauce wasn't totally right, but without reading Sauce, I wouldn't have carved away any of that. And that's what he taught me. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for taking the time today to come and reminisce with me about Sauce and his ideas. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, it's been uh, great fun. And definitely when this comes on, send me the URL and I will get you some clicks. I'm up to like 60,000 Twitter followers, so should get, get us something. Excellent. And uh, make sure to keep your tab open for just a minute while, uh, after right I stop that. this. Okay. Thank you. Okay, great. All right, thanks a lot.